Salacia so much for talking a little bit about serving. You know, we like to say here we want many people doing a few things and not a few people doing many things. So I think we probably have the largest volunteer team of any church our size. <laughs> um, I would like to brag that. I don't know that for sure. Um, but it is just such a great thing to be able to make friends uh, and to get to just serve in a small way, maybe once a month, um, one another as a church. So, so grateful um, that you would consider that and that you're here and joining us today. Uh, well, I want to start off with a little story. First of all, my name is Cassie. My husband, Alex, and I, we both lead this church together. And so if we haven't met, I'd love to do so afterwards. But if you don't know me, I actually grew up in a family of three sisters. So there was, I was one of three daughters. And although I don't want to lean into gender stereotypes, my family very much fits the gender stereotypes of having three girls. Like there was a constant emotional roller coaster that was happening in my family. My poor father, he loves being a girl dad, so he would have never complained. But like he grew up with a brother. He's like, what do I do with these three girls? There's so many emotions. I don't know. And thankfully, my parents were extremely compassionate, very loving, but also would address many of these dramatic moments with humor, uh, which again, very grateful for good parents that knew how to do that well. And one of my favorite examples of this is when we would have a particular dramatic woe is me moment or like the endless complaining that happens, especially when you're a teenage girl. My parents together would break out into song singing gloom, despair, and agony on me. Deep, dark depression, excessive misery. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. I did not have to memorize that for this sermon. I know it by heart. Uh, some of you are laughing because you've heard this song. Um, I warn you, it is from a show, Hee Haw, which is not politically correct anymore. So please, I don't want an email after church. I'm fully aware. It's for the purpose of the story, okay? So that does not have anything to do with my sermon today. Outside of the fact that I'm about to have a gloom, despair, and agony on me moment. So I warn you, and I also promise that we'll have some really good news here shortly. In January of 2018, news broke out of the UK that they had appointed a Minister of Loneliness. This is a pretty self-explanatory title. Basically, this individual was working to coordinate the government's response to an epidemic of loneliness in the nation. This position was created because of a study uh, that was released just a year earlier that stated over 9 million people in the UK reported feeling lonely always or often. Mark Robinson, the chief officer of Britain's largest charity working with the elderly, warned that the problem could actually kill. And he says this, loneliness is proven to be worse for health than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And lest we think this is hyperbole, this is directly from the CDC's website. They state that social isolation significantly increased a person's risk of premature death from all causes, a risk that rivals smoking, obesity, and physical inactivity. Social isolation was associated with about a 50% increase in the risk of dementia. 
poor social relationships characterized by social, social isolation or loneliness was associated with 29% increase in heart disease and a 32% increase risk of stroke. Loneliness was also associated with higher rates of depression, anxiety, and suicide. Gallup states that experiencing significant loneliness is entangled in a larger global issue of mental health and emotional well-being. Recently, they reported and estimated that over 300 million people in the world don't have a single friend. And one in five don't have a friend or a family member they can count on when needed. Unless we think that this is just a global problem, or maybe a European problem, or maybe a problem for those just over the age of 50. It's a huge problem in the US, specifically among young adults. According to Gallup, they did a poll in January of 2023 that stated loneliness in America was highest among young adults. Those under the age of 30 account for 24% or around 10 million of the people living in the United States that experience loneliness. Just to put that in perspective, the average age of this church is 30 people, which means 25% of those sitting in this room experience severe loneliness every day. And unfortunately, well-being is not the only thing at risk here. Loneliness has shown to be correlated to an increase in tribalism and thus the animosity experienced between groups and individuals. It comes as no surprise, right, that loneliness would be linked to an increase in individualism. And so as individualism has increased, isolation has increased, and thus people have found themselves increasingly in homogeneous echo chambers. Rarely are people exposed nowadays to those who think, act, look different than they do. And there's no place that we see this happen more than in politics. David Brooks, opinion writer for The New Yorker, argues that we have shifted from identity politics that emphasize our common humanity to identity politics that emphasize our con con excuse me, common enemy. And we have seen this play out time and time again over the last 10 years. So not only are we living in an environment of increased loneliness, but we are also now viewing people not as humans, not even as potential friends, but as enemies. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. <laughs> Moment over. But real talk, right? What do we do? This feels like a tidal wave that's not stopping, that we can't seem to stem the tide of ever-flowing water of loneliness, despair, of individualistic tribalism. But the good news is, and I promised you I would get to good news, is that we actually find the answers to this question in the life of Jesus. Jesus. 
Alex frequently makes this joke whenever we do a dinner party, which is like where we invite new people into this community. And it goes a little something like this. I'm sorry, probably 75% of you have heard this. Uh, Jesus' greatest miracle was that he was 30 and had 12 friends. Right? And as like, silly as this joke may be, it's really powerful. Because how many of us can say at the age of 30, I've got 12 really good friends. But as we're going to see today, to follow Jesus is to be in community. It's to have friends. For the last couple weeks, we've been in a sermon series entitled Practicing the Resurrection. And this sermon title and this whole series comes from an incredible book. It's called Living the Resurrection by Eugene Peterson. I'd suggest you go listen to it. It's got some great nuggets in it. But it's basically this idea, right, that as we are in this Easter season, as we are experiencing the goodness of Easter, the 40 days after that Easter day, right, that we actually get to practice and live into the life Jesus has given us through his resurrection. And so through this sermon series, we've asked you to keep three things in mind. The first one is this, our God defeated death. This is the very central message of our faith that Christ died, that he was buried, and that he physically rose again in the flesh and walked here again on earth. Point two, Easter is everything. It's more than just a day on a calendar, some nice feelings of spring or seasonal allergies, right? It's the very climax of our Christian story. It's God's invitation to belong to a new world, a new kingdom, a new way of living an entirely different life. And thus, as we work to learn this new way of living, we actually practice resurrection. Eugene Peterson says this, the practice of resurrection is an intentional and deliberate decision to believe and participate in resurrection life. A life out of death, a life that trumps death, a life that has the last word, Jesus life. So we've been exploring what it looks like to live this Jesus life over the last couple weeks. And we've been doing this through several different practices. The first week was cultivating a practice of wonder. Second week was cultivating a practice of rest or Sabbath. Third week was practicing meals. This idea that we actually invite people to a table, to meals, and that's how they experience the new life of Jesus. And this week, we're focusing on friendship. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, we see Jesus begin his ministry, and the very first thing he does is recruit disciples. He recruits friends. Jesus, of all people, right, fully God and fully human, of all people, he was capable of doing this on his own. He didn't have to have people helping him, and yet he chose to make friends. 
And when we examine Jesus' friends, we actually notice a few interesting things about them, right? Look at somebody's friends, and you'll know what they're like. And so let's look at Jesus' friends. We see Matthew chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, it says this. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. If you do a quick study on each of these disciples, you'll realize that each of these 12 individuals could not have been more different. This is like the start to a really bad joke. A priest, a minister, and a rabbi walk into a bar, right? A devout Jew, a tax collector, and a zealot, which is basically like a Jewish extremist, all hang out together. This is Jesus' crew. They represent several different socioeconomic statuses, groups, professions, beliefs, political parties, you name it. Similarities were hard to come by. And yet this is the group of people that Jesus not only chooses, loves, makes his friends, but then tells each and every one of them that they're supposed to love one another. We see this in John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35. Jesus says this to his friends. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Notice, he's not calling a bunch of similar people to get along, be friendly, or be Midwestern nice to each other. He's calling very different people from all different kinds of backgrounds, not just to be nice to one another, but to love one another as he has loved them. This is a different kind of friendship. Our culture, our churches, our teachers, our preachers, Jesus followers, yes, even we, have defined the words one another too conveniently and very narrowly. When we say one another, what we really mean is love the people that agree with me. Love those who are like me. Love those who reinforce who I am. But a very simple understanding of the disciples group dynamics here shatters this ideology. Jesus says, love one another in all your differences, in all your strife, amidst all of your squabbles, all of your arguments, all of the anger you experience towards one another, love each other, and that is your testimony to the world. That is my gospel. That's my way of living. That's how people look at you and say, huh, there's something different there. Because human nature dictates we hang out with the people we like. In the words of Wheaton theology professor Dan Haas, he says this, 
This is where we as Christians have such a beautiful story to tell. They will know you are Christians. How? By being friends. Friendship requires love in the face of diversity and adversity. And this is our testimony to a lonely world that views people as enemies. But lest we think that this is hard enough, Jesus takes it a step further. John 15, picking up in verse 12, Jesus says this, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear much fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whenever you ask anything of the father in my name, he may give it to you. He's describing what a good friend looks like. These things I command to you so that you will love one another. When reading these verses, I'm first struck by Jesus' intimacy with his disciples. With maybe even his intimacy towards me that he would call me friend. That he doesn't just love me, but that he actually likes me. That I didn't just choose to follow Jesus, but that he chose me to be his friend. And just as you chose to follow Jesus, Jesus chose you to be his friend. This is the very foundation of following Jesus, right? A personal relationship of love and loyalty whereby God loves us more than we could ever imagine even unto death. And thus, the reflection of the love and the loyalty we experience with Jesus should be seen in our love for one another. I've been uh, seeing a counselor for the last couple years, and it's amazing how much family of origin just relates to your everyday life and actions, right? And so a lot of the times when I'm struggling with something, I'm like, why am I doing the things I'm doing, right? I'm always thinking, going back towards, okay, what in my life growing up has kind of led me to feel this way or to do this particular thing? Basically, what Jesus is saying here is if your parental relationship with me is that kind of love, your action should look like that kind of love. You should be living out of this new family of origin that I have invited you into. For there is no higher form of love than being willing to lay your physical life down for a friend. This is radical. This is different. This is not what we are cho told to believe and think growing up. Maybe I lay my life down for my family, but a friend... In a society where friendship is networking, a strategy for career moves, 
a transaction where you can be lonely in a room full of people. Jesus' followers can demonstrate a friendship that reflects Christ's holy, undeserved, and self-sacrificial death. And the question we have to ask ourselves today, the question I've been asking myself all week is, do I view friendship this way? Do we view this community this way? Do you strive to love your friends even in the most desperate of circumstances? When the timing is inconvenient, when you're annoyed, when you're tired? Do you have a love that offers whatever is needed, whenever is needed to a friend in time of need? Just as we have seen Jesus begin his ministry here on earth in community, we actually see him also end his ministry here on earth in community. Jesus' resurrection takes place in a company of friends. People who know one another by name takes place in a deep web of relationship. And I don't know about you, but if I was planning Jesus' resurrection, I would have done things way differently. I would have planned some really big event. I would have invited the most important people, the kings, the politicians, the rabbis. I would have had an order of service. Jesus would have a certain slot in which, you know, he kind of like comes out, curtain goes down, woo, he's still alive, right? But that is not what Jesus does at all. In fact, he does the exact opposite. Instead of putting on an impersonal event announcing his resurrection, Jesus chooses to put on a personal one. He shows up to Mary Magdalene in the garden. She's weeping. He shows up to Peter on the beach, and he makes him breakfast. He shows up to Thomas when he doubts, and he invites him to touch his hands and his feet. Eugene Peterson writes this, the named people remind us that resurrection takes place among men and women like us. Puzzled, bewildered, confused, questioning, even stubbornly doubting friends, and yet also singing, believing, praying, and obeying friends. See, to live as Jesus did, to practice resurrection, to live in this new way of living life, to live in Jesus's new kingdom, we must be in community. We have to have friends. You cannot preach the gospel alone. You cannot love alone. You cannot hope to be spiritually formed on your own. You cannot follow Jesus alone. And this should be really good news, right? Because imagine a life of resurrection friendships in which you actually know your coworkers and you like them. Imagine a calendar filled with coffee, meals, birthday parties, and weddings. Imagine a life in which a new neighbor is not a nuisance, but yet another invitation to get to know someone new. 
Where church isn't a place where you bring your most mess or your best perfect self, but you bring your most authentic, messy, and real self. A place in which when you serve your city, your neighborhood, your community, it's an invitation to meet people who are very different than you. Resurrection, once again, reminds us to follow Jesus is to be in community. It's to have friends. And this should be really good news. But for some of us, it's not. Worship team, if you would join me. I recognize that in a room full of people, we've got varying different stories and levels of loneliness, isolation, friendship, and community. And if some of you are being honest here today, you're like, ugh, I know this is supposed to be good news, but it doesn't feel very great. And so today, I would like to offer two barriers, identify two barriers that keep us from entering into friendship. And then I want to offer three suggestions for how we do that. Because sometimes it's hard to know where to start. First barrier, hurt. I know for a fact that there is deep hurt that exists in this room. Hurt from people who called themselves Jesus followers, who did not love you unto death, who abandoned you when you needed them the most, when you finally decided to be real, authentic, they cut you off. And let me be the first to say that I am really sorry because I know that even personally I've inflicted hurt on people, but I've also been on the receiving end of hurt. And as much as I wish I could assure you that that won't happen anymore or that won't even happen in this church, I can't. Because to want friendship is to inevitably invite hurt. These two things are inextricably linked because we are imperfect people in an imperfect world being formed into the person of Christ. But man, that's not even close to being done yet. But let me assure you today that that hurt is worth it because this kind of love is worth it. It's worth the risk. And I know it was worth the risk because Jesus felt like it was worth the risk. When he died on that cross anyway, when he gathered up those 12 disciples knowing Peter was going to betray him and Judas was going to lead him to his death. So barrier number one, hurt. Barrier number two, hiding. When we go through difficult seasons, the temptation is to isolate. It's to hide. However, scripture aside, like lots of good things in scripture on this, but scripture aside, research tells us that this is the literal worst possible thing that we could do. This is the worst possible thing that we could do for our mental, emotional, spiritual, and even physical well-being. Hiding is the enemy 
of our soul. And if you want to actually feel better, to have friends, to break a self-fulfilling cycle and prophecy that says you will always be alone, there is no joy to be found in life, you cannot hide. You have to be known. Not only are these two barriers that we experience, there's probably many more. I think these are probably the two most widespread. There are, though, three suggestions. Three things that help us move past those barriers and into this resurrection life of friendship. The first one is intentionality. As much as I wish friendships happened organically, they really don't. Remember, Jesus had to invite his followers. He looked at Peter and Andrew as they were in the boat and said, Come, follow me. He looked at James and John and said, Come, follow me. He looked at Matthew, the tax collector, and said, Come, follow me. You have to ask. I think the temptation can be to live in some sort of resentful stinginess in which it's like, man, if only people would ask me to hang out, right? Like, it'd be nice to be asked every once in a while. But if we are living out of our new family of origin, a love that says, I'm willing to die for you, I'm willing to sacrifice for you unto death, we will always make the invitation. We will always pull up another seat at the table. We will always ask. We will always approach people with intentionality because friendship happens through invitation. Live out of an abundance of love. Do not live out of stinginess. Suggestion number two, trust. If hurt and hiding are barriers, trust becomes all the more difficult. It's much easier to hide one's true self, especially at church, right? To only show your rightness and never your wrongness. But to truly be in community, to have friends, to be vulnerable, we do have to trust. And I'm not suggesting this happens overnight or even in the course of a month, but it does need to happen over years. Because for us to be formed into the person of love, we have to be honest about the places in which we are unloving. We have to take the darkest parts of ourselves and we have to pull them into the light if we ever want to be shaped and formed into the person of Jesus. Because friendship is the way in which we are formed to look more like him. The only way we get better at loving is messing up, repenting, saying sorry, and trying to love again. Suggestion number three, hospitality. I won't belabor this point because last week Alex literally divided a whole sermon to this, right? Have meals with people made a case for Christian hospitality. So if you miss it, go back and listen. But it goes without saying, invite a lot of people over for meals. 
Man, if you want to increase your trust, if you want to be more vulnerable, if you want to be more intentional, there's nothing like inviting someone into your personal space, into your home. And this is how people know we are Christian, right? By being friends through this type of hospitality. In the words of Rosaria Butterfield, in a post-Christian community, words can only be as strong as your relationships. You could insert friendships. Your best weapon is an open door, a set table, a fresh pot of coffee, and a box of Kleenex. Deeper friends are always formed over a good meal in which four hours go by and you're like, oh man, I gotta get home, right? It's microchurch every week at our house. It's like 1030. It's like, oh, we gotta go. So we've got some barriers, right? Hurting and hiding. We've also got some suggestions, hospitality, trust, intentionality. A few ways that I practice this personally in my life, um, Speaking of intentionality, uh, last year, actually, towards the end of the year, I kind of had this realization that in town, I didn't have a friend that I could be, like, brutally honest with. One of the um, downsides to being a pastor is, like, when someone asks you how your workday was, and if it was really bad, you can't, like, really be honest with them, because that'd be breaking confidentiality, gossiping, like, all the things, right? So I was realizing this past fall, I'm like, man, I, I, I don't really have somebody here in Kansas City. Like, I have people all over the U.S., but I don't have somebody in Kansas City that I can just be brutally honest with. And so I have a friend, her name is Courtney. She's a pastor in Independence. I was like, hey, Courtney, uh, would you be willing just every single month to get together and talk through the moments in which we missed Jesus that month, like our darkest moments and then the moments where we saw him? Let me tell you, it has been the most life-giving friendship and relationship. And although I wish I could say, like, the best parts of it are, like, I'm getting closer to Jesus. And, you know, I feel, like, this great relief from, like, my horribleness and, you know, all those things. To be honest, the best thing that has come out of that time is my friendship with her. And if anything, that friendship with her has helped me understand better what my friendship looks like with Christ. But the only way that happened was not because, like, I'm some cool person that everybody wants to hang out with. To the contrary. It was because I asked her. It's one of the ways in which I practice friendship. The other is I attend microchurch every week. Talk about intentionality, right? Like, to show up every single week. Talk about hospitality. It's in our home, right? To open up our home every single week. Talk about trust. Those that are in our microchurch know. Alex and I are honest. I have to trust that that community will be kind. Won't throw me under the bus. I gather here on Sundays with this community every single week. Your voices carry me. They lift me up. Alex and I actually meet with a group of 15 to 20 pastors in Kansas City every single month. And what incredible friendships, because we are reminded that we're not tasked to build the castle of Midtown, but the kingdom of Jesus. 
And then Alex and I make it a priority every single week to grab coffee with someone or to have a meal with someone in our home. This may sound exhausting, especially if you're an introvert. My husband is one, I know, right? But I'm not asking you to integrate all of these things tomorrow or even in two weeks. I'm just simply asking you to start somewhere. I had to start somewhere. This is not what my life looked like five years ago. Where can you start? Maybe with just a little bit of intentionality, a little bit of trust, through hospitality, you will find that you no longer hide and that the hurt comes a lot easier. Take one step towards friendship because to follow Jesus is to be in community. To follow Jesus is to have friends. I want to pray for us here because I know for some of you this is hard because this very message exposes maybe some of the loneliness that you yourself feel. And so God, just right now, I pray for those in this room maybe sitting in their chair and having like a sinking feeling. Like, man, I don't have anyone in my corner. I've been hurt so many times. It just sounds so hard to do it again. God, it's so much easier to hide. It takes so much energy. God, I just pray right now that you would give those individuals the strength that they need in this moment. To say, sometimes I do the very thing I don't want to do. And sometimes the very thing I need is not the thing I think I need. May you give them the boldness and the courage to do that very thing, which is to be in community, to have friends, to have people who shoulder the burden with them and who reflect the friendship they get to experience with you. And for those in the room who are blessed with many friends, Jesus, we praise you and thank you for this community that you have built, for this church that you have built, for the church that you continue to build, that this was your strategy for reaching the world, being friends. Jesus, thank you for the friendship that you have given us the true source, the family of origin that helps us to love our friends, yes, even unto death. God, may we strive to live friendships in this way, not in the way that the world tells us we are to live them, a series of transactions, of networking, of usage, but one that gives and does not expect in return. We love you, Jesus. It's your example we hope to emulate. It is our prayer. Amen. for listening.
listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church. Thank you.